With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, it is Friday. We've made it through the work week. We are observing Veterans Day. It's actually tomorrow, but we're going to observe it like with the rest of the country today and tomorrow too. But you have joined the Sean Spicer Show. Sit back, relax, and we're going to be put you into cruise control for the weekend. All right, we've got a great show headed your way. Aaron Elmore is going to help us break down everything that happened this week. I mean everything. And then we're going to talk uh, to Alex Plitzass from the Special Operations Association of America about what they're doing in Israel to get Americans out because our government can't do it. And also the state of our military today. A lot to break down. Let's get into it. Thanks for being with us. As I said, a great show today. By the way, a lot to break down next week. Jill Stein, the former Green Party candidate from 2016 that I always talk about how well they did in states like Michigan. She's back. She's running again. This is good news for us on the Republican side. Those who want to see a Republican back in the White House, a big thing. We'll be breaking that down. Uh, Plus, today, seven days until the next government shutdown. Obviously, a lot to break down next week on where that stands because it doesn't stand very well. Uh, So we'll break that down. But so much to review that happened this week in politics. I want to kick it off with our good friend, Aaron Elmore. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Happy Friday to you. Happy Friday to you. I miss doing the Friday show with you. And we did the company quiz every week. I know. I've got to figure out a way. I I, I know you've said it before, and I agree. I got to bring that, find a way to bring that back. Uh, But let's just recap the week for now. How's that? We'll just kind of, (laughs) we'll start with that and then we'll figure out sometime soon how to bring the quiz in. I want to get, like, there's a lot of people wetting their pants about how everything went down on Tuesday night. Some rightly so, some not so. What, what, do you, what are your takeaways from Tuesday night's elections in terms of what Republicans should care about and not care about? I feel like there's definitely been a great deal of chatter about this, and I hate to say it. I do think it's the abortion issue. I, I yeah. truly do. I, not necessarily the issue itself, it's the way that the Democrats are sort of bastardizing it right. and sort of having mobilizing it. They have door knockers in every state where this was basically on the ballot to get out the vote and go to these people's homes, the white, middle-aged, college-educated suburban voter, and say, if you vote Republican, your rights are going to be taken away. And we know that that is not true. It's the way that they are using it to their advantage and mobilizing the troops, whereas we don't have that mobilization on our side as conservatives. Wait, but here's the thing that, and I agree with you, I think it's messaging and mobilization, right? And mechanics, as I always say, like that's the, yeah. the get out the vote stuff. But here's what I don't understand. Why? Republicans, every Republican that's running for office says that they're pro-life, that they wanted Roe v. Wade sent back to the states. We, the dog caught the car. And then we've kind of been around saying, okay, like, where's our, who, who, I mean, I'm still at, like, everyone sort of comes to the same conclusion and no one's willing to raise their hand and say, okay, I'll do it. Well, I think again, it's messaging. So another M, I don't know if that was one of your M's, but it's that when Roe v. Wade was overturned, it wasn't that no one is going to be able to have bodily autonomy. It was that this is a state's rights issue. And we know the CNNs, the MSNBCs, the New York Times of the world 
made liberals who are not paying that close attention to the news think that's what was happening. Right. You know, and, and I think the messaging around this is truly the problem. I don't think that the most that a majority of Americans are com- completely pro-life. I really don't. I think I do believe that and this isn't my opinion, but I think Nikki Haley sort of danced around it pretty well. And I don't want to misquote her, but basically she was like, this is never going to happen. So let's sort of get it off the table politically before we ruin ourselves. And I think that a lot of Americans that are sort of that independent voter are teetering. They say that there's a time frame. Of course, we don't believe in infanticide. And, and I think that if conservative politicians are only worried about the Christian conservatives, they say, well, they're not going to vote at all. I think that we realize in this world, we are at a really massive impasse that they would rather vote for someone that who is a little bit of a pro-choice Republican than the death to America Democrat. So, okay. So if you're with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Advising a candidate right now, um, what, how would you tell them to, to properly message on this issue? I mean, I think it's a really complicated way of looking at it. I, I, it's, it's super complicated. I think that you would start by saying this is an issue that we need to have removed from politics. If we believe in bodily autonomy with a vaccine, we really have to having, start having some tough conversations here. You know, maybe things like that, because it is one of those issues that if you want the independence, you're not going to be able to say, you know, no abortion at all or only for the life of the mother, you know, incest, rape, sort of that sort of thing. I personally think that as as a party, we need to evolve. And again, this is not necessarily what I think Aaron Elmore as a person. I just stay up at night thinking about this. What are we going to do? Because we are not winning elections. Well, and that's, I want to move into that because I feel like that was a topic at the debate. Vivek Ramaswamy and, and actually Ron DeSantis as well both brought up this, this losing that's going on. Yeah. Now, I, I believe, uh, look, I'm a, I've, I've made my bones very obvious in the past about like, the party structure serves a purpose. It's it's to create, it's like a I mean, league, right? It, it's it's the playing field. It allows the rules and, and the infrastructure. Candidates have to run good campaigns. They have to raise money. They have to sell themselves. People aren't going out anymore and saying, I'm just going to vote Republican or there's a lever to push. You're, you're going out and you're saying, I like this candidate. I like that candidate. I'm going to vote for them or they persuaded me or I like what they're saying. I mean, kind of what you're saying on abortion that the candidate needs to message it and make you feel comfortable and make you feel like you understand them. That being said, you saw two two of the major candidates, Ramaswamy and DeSantis, bring up this losing. And is it a candidate problem or an infrastructure problem? It's the RNC problem. I know you're Ooh. like friendly with all of them and they're good people to, to many. It's an RNC problem. And, and that's plain and simple. And that's why people are saying for Ms. Romney, aka Ms., you know, to get out of there, you know? So, but so this is where, and again, I don't, like I said, I, I make no bones about it. I don't, I, I've got people that I like and people I don't. As an institution, I do support the party structure because that's what gives ballot access and fundraising capabilities, et cetera, to all candidates. You have an R next to your name, you have access to the tools. What, what could and should, I mean, if you, if you're, 
if you were tell, saying to, to Rana McDaniel right now, like, okay, here's what you need to do aside from step aside, right? What, what is it that somebody should be going in there and doing? I mean, unfortunately, at this point, it certainly does seem like the outcry is is there and that she probably needs to step down. And we need someone that's a little more in touch with the grass, grassroots America first Trump-esque movement within the party, because it's become that very grassroots, you know, average Joe voter. And those are the candidates that, that the party wants to see, whereas the RNC might not see that. Um, you know, I think it's properly of choosing where your funds go for the election. I think it's probably understanding who these candidates are and the resources that they need. Um, you know, I know what you're saying about the two-party system, but there's certain things about the two-party system. Yes, we're stuck in this because it benefits both Republicans right. and Democrats, but I'm old enough to remember when Ross Perot came in and about shook up both the Republicans and Democrats. And I'll educate some of the people watching right now today that the League of Women Voters used to handle the debates. And that was sort of this, third party tertiary organization that allowed the Ross Burroughs to be right up there with the Republicans and the Democrats. And then after that, Republicans and Democrats got together and said, hey, listen, the enemy of the enemy is my friend. Neither of us want third party candidates. So let's take it out of their hands, have it something be that we control and destroy the third, uh, you know, third party candidates forever. And that's truly what happened. And I'm a Republican through and through, and I wouldn't vote for a Democrat if it was my mother. Okay, I will tell you that right now. I love my dog. I'm not voting for her if she's a Democrat. She's probably getting kicked out of the House as well. But I do think that both parties created this so that they're setting themselves up, setting themselves up for greater success. That might not be the answer. Oh, to the well, look, there's no question about it. They 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 want to squeeze out the third party. Yeah. Uh, for and and that's why I mean I've been talking about ballot access because all of these third party. I mean RFK people who get worried about RFK you know, it was Mark Halpern that reminded us uh, a while ago, tell me what ballot RFK is going to be on. I mean, the reality is RFK is going to have a massive ballot access issue. Yeah. And for all of the polls that he does well in, if you can't be on a ballot, it doesn't matter. But the reason he can't get on the ballot is because the two major parties have ensured that third party ballot access or, or independent ballot access is extremely difficult. So yeah. that's the problem. That's why I think this Green Party thing um, is actually a, an issue that Jill Stein, who ran against Hillary Clinton in 2015, or ran on the Green Party line in 2015 and benefited Hillary Clinton, or benefited Donald Trump, yeah. to the demise of Hillary Clinton, she's back. She's going to run on that line again. That's a big deal. And I think that that's where, but you're right, the Green Party's actually... Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply in some states getting kicked off because they haven't gotten enough of the percentage of the vote, yeah. but look, they get it. They want to squeeze out the third party and, and limit your choices. Yeah, definitely. And I think that RFK, when he came on the scene, he was an interesting sort of, maybe we can take Joe Biden out of this race. And now I think at least in the world that I live and the view that I have, the, the Trump Republicans or the, you know, Republicans that initially liked RFK, he's really exposed himself for who he is. And everyone knows that Republicans aren't for RFK anymore. That was a very well, short-lived sort of 
I don't know. This is interesting. Well, and now, as you said well, earlier, it's the enemy of my enemy. And as long as the guy was running against Biden, it was like, yeah. hey, I like that guy. And now, yeah, and now we're like, beat it, geek. Right. I want to go back to, to the debate, though, because I kind of was pulling that thread a second. What did you think? I thought Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, as a guy, I, I kind of cringed a little when he went after Nikki Haley, right? And I was like, he's talking about the size of her heels and then her daughter. And I was like, I get the point that you're making, Vivek, but like the, this comes, this is probably not endearing you to a lot of female voters, but you are a female voter. So I want to ask you. Yeah, but I'm not like the typical female voter. You know, I cut my teeth, <laughs> at, I cut my teeth at a law firm where I, I was a young woman with all men and I've heard and seen a lot worse. Um, locker room talk is, is nothing to me, but for me, I thought, um, all fair and love and war. And this is war. I liked what he said. I think he's quippy. I'm certainly not voting for him. Uh, certainly not an endorsement, but I thought when he, you know, when he said Dick Cheney and heels, those are the sound bites that you get that make news. And I think he was trying to make news and it worked. And when he talks, and that's, that's the thing that I find interesting. You're right. He made news. He was once again, the talk of the internet and, and frankly, the morning shows. But it was funny because I, I had gotten a lot of texts from, from women that were just like, oh, dude, that was just a little too much. And I get it. They're, most conservative women aren't the sort of the feminazi, sexist, you know, all worried about their pronouns. But I no. think they were like, dude, you, you could have gone after her on policy, but you're making it gender specific by attacking certain things. Uh, I mean, I certainly understand the argument, although I don't agree with it. And Here's the thing. Haley went after him about being on TikTok and what he said, like basically what he said was fair. If you're so worried about what I'm doing, clean up your own house. Like, But, but here's the, the difference is I get like, look, I've been very clear. I have a problem with TikTok. I'm not on it. My kids aren't on it, but my kids are minors, right? I can control what on, what's on their phones. I can tell them. Nikki Haley's daughter, and I'm not defending this because I no. actually, I, but I'm saying that there's a difference between a minor child who you have a right to say, here's here's a phone that I am bequeathing you, I am your yeah. adult guardian, and a 25-year-old woman, which is what Nikki's daughter is. And I yeah. kind of was like, there's a little difference to say, well, you should be able to tell your 25-year-old daughter what to do and what to have on her phone. I think that it should be, like, I would love to see parents make that case. I think they should be to all their kids, regardless of how old they are. But my point is, it was a little bit of a cheap shot because it made it sound like, you know, your daughter's on TikTok. Well, she's 25. She's going to do what she wants to do, whether her mother tells her to or not. Yeah, I think that's fair also. But, you know, he's an adult too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, but, and I, I, but look, I, I, yeah. I think that like the idea that he's on TikTok is inexcusable. You can't tell me that you are tough on China, that you're concerned about the national security threat that they pose, the intellectual property that they steal, and then say, but I'm going to go on TikTok where that's exactly what they do. But, but the problem is, is young Republican kids are on TikTok. And if he I, wants to that young voter, he, here's what I would do if I were him. I'm going to use this to my advantage to get votes. And then the minute I win, I'm going to shut it down. Yeah, but I I, I get that, but that is, you. it's sort of like, how do you talk about, I, it's such a transactional thing. That's the Biden campaign. They're saying, yes, TikTok's bad. We're banning it on government phones. It's illegal to use in the military and national security, but then we're going to campaign on it. What signal does that send to a young person who you're trying to say, yes, it's very dangerous. Let me tell you how bad it is, but I'm going to communicate with it. I'm going to communicate by it on you. I just, to me, I, you can't, if you're a young person, you're like, yeah, I get what you're saying. It's politically expedient, but you can do it and I can't. I mean, 
I, I, I get why well, it's right now I would say everyone like, you know, when I get in, it'll be gone. I'm going to like, then you guys will understand, you know, I am not a fan of Chris Christie. However, um, I thought that he had a really cogent point on TikTok. He said the Chinese communist party doesn't have Instagram or Facebook or X. Right. Why are we allowing their platforms? And on the left, they're all saying free speech, free speech, but got to go back to something. This isn't really about free speech. This is a Chinese communist party spying app and they don't, allow ours there so why should we allow theirs here i, I agree and that's again i, I mean like there is, i i love i mean i thought there were so many good points they they not that not just that but the version of tiktok that they have in china oh yeah is different than the version they have here i mean this is such there are so many separate issues to to pull down uh and discuss and yet i again i i'm i'm actually intrigued it shows you at the beginning of this congress actually probably a little before, there was so much agreement that we had to ban it, we had to do it. And then you saw the lobbyists and the money. And I couldn't believe how many ads TikTok was running during the debate. I mean, these guys get it, which is, all right, politicians, you want to ban us? We'll, we'll, we'll use our platform to go after you. We'll help. We'll have our lobbyists. I mean, this is so Washington. It's unbelievable. To me, yeah. this is a black and white issue. It's bad for our country. It's a threat to national security. We shouldn't even be debating this thing. And yet, these politicians, they're on it. They're not doing anything about it because the system, the, the swamp, as Trump would like to say, is winning. Yeah. I mean, I think that's all extremely valid. You even saw that when all of the um, Sam Bankman Freed stuff was coming out. Of course, he was funding Democrats. But basically, when they were thinking about regulating crypto, he was like, OK, everybody, here's, you know, we're lining your pockets. And then everyone's like, oh, crypto is great. Let's just let it do its own thing. And we saw so, that talked to a few Republicans too and donated to a few Republicans too. Uh, yeah, exactly. It was like, I'm going to make sure that that doesn't happen. But at the end of next week, seven days from today, the government's going to run out of funding again. We got this new uh. speaker, Mike Johnson, who came in. He has all these things. There's not, they, they actually, the Republicans had to pull two of the appropriations bills this week that they couldn't move forward. So that was, you know, that was always the, the plan. We want to move these one at a time. We want to do this and jam the Senate. They haven't done anything. And so they're out of session today because it's a Veterans Day observed. They're going to come back Monday and have five days before the next shutdown happens. And I, I feel like this is Groundhog Day where we're just going to keep kicking the can down the road. Now, I'm actually a somewhat of a fan of the CRs in the sense that they actually cut spending because they keep it at levels that are below the, the new ones so that Washington can't add, add in new money. And so I, as much as it Hate, kills me that this is how we're doing business. If it ensures that we don't spend additional money, I'm for it. And I think that's that's the only upside right now. But I feel like everybody wanted to rearrange the chairs on the deck of the Titanic and say, okay, we got a new speaker, we're going to do this. And yet they don't realize the ship still sinks. And yeah. that's what's going to happen next Friday. I mean, I think I look at this through the lens of the average American who doesn't maybe understand how this works in Washington. Where is all of this money going? We have an open border. Gas is still extremely expensive. The grocery store is completely unaffordable. Why are we spending all this money and none of our lives are getting any better? Right. Like, and, and the bureaucracy in Washington is so bloated and it's just really hard to watch. And it's almost makes you feel helpless. Like there's nothing we can do about it. Right. So that's just where I feel. I mean, I know that's maybe not the answer you're looking for, but it's just really disheartening to see these people spending our money, hand over fist, sending it to all of these countries overseas. I'm not even talking about the wars. I'm just talking about, you know, I saw something online the other day. We're sending 
X million dollars overseas to fund LBGTQIA initiatives. Like, what? But that's the thing that, and I ask this every time a member of Congress comes on, right? I, there are big entitlement programs that need to get reformed if we really want to address the debt and the deficit. Okay, I get that. Yeah. I was I, I served on the budget committee for three years as the spokesman in, in on the House side. Yeah. But at the end of the day, these low hanging pieces of fruit that the, the the grant that you're just talking about, the funding for this and that that like every Republican should be like, okay, they, I'm against that. Why is that? It's it blows my mind. They control the House. The Constitution gives it the power to originate spending. And yet they all shake their head and say, you know, you're right. It is a shame. And I'm like, but you're the guy or the girl with the vote. Why are you guys sitting back saying, we're just going to let this keep happening. And the right. one thing I, 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 these I bills now, right. They're so big and there's so much pork, right. In these pieces of legislation. And you don't even, if it's, they should start itemizing these things. Lucky land casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha. In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, for the average uh, American citizen. But the problem is, is let's say you don't want to pass X in that bill, and then they'll throw in. Well, for your home state, your wife runs yes. the library, Joe Manchin. Maybe we just throw a little funding for the library in West Virginia. So it's basically Washington is the most corrupt place on earth. It, it, our founders would be rolling over in their graves the way that this is running. And we shouldn't have career politicians and all of these special interests. It sort of makes you really upset when you see, when you start to peel back the layers of the onion, you really do cry and not just because right. it's onion. Uh, yeah, I agree. Aaron, I appreciate you being with us on this Friday. I hope you enjoy the weekend. I know you're down there in Florida where it is so much warmer and nicer. It's beautiful. Uh, so I know. Anyway, thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Sean. Always a pleasure to see you. All right. Well, that set the stage for our next conversation. Uh, I want to bring in Alex Plates. He is a member of the Special Operations Association of America. He's a board member there, served the country, uh, deployed to Iraq. He was on the White House policy hostage team a great conversation that I want to have with him about where we are in this Veterans Day, what they're doing and why our government isn't doing it. I want to bring in Alex. Alex, good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Sean, thank you so much for having me. Good to see you again as well. Yeah. So um, I know today we're observing Veterans Day, uh, but obviously thanks for your service. Thanks for everything that you guys do over at Special Operations Association of America. It's interesting. You know, you go to your website and you talk about all the stuff that you guys do to support the special operators and their com the community, et cetera. But you guys have been very active both in Afghanistan and now in Israel, getting Americans out. Can you explain what you're doing and frankly, why you're doing it? Sure. No, that's, I mean, that's entirely accurate. And thank you as well for your service. I mean, I know that you've been a Navy officer for a long time, almost joined you at one point, uh, <laughs> which was great. It was the last conversation we had. Um, you know, the mission of the organization is kind of twofold, as you mentioned. So it's obviously to support the community through, you know, efforts on the Hill and awareness and, and whatnot. Uh, but then also we've kind of found this niche space, I would say, by accident, I think, during the Afghan withdrawal, subsequently in Ukraine, and then most recently in Israel, where the government has inherently governmental functions that they have to perform. So, you know, hostage rescue, military operations on one side. And on the other, you know, State Department support for non-combatant evacuation operations. And in the middle, there's kind of a bit of a void where, you know, citizens who have, find themselves trapped 
uh, may need help navigating to a safe location, dealing with the bureaucracy, getting information from the outside, how to survive, you know, in an environment like that where there's you know combat going on around them. And we found some pretty effective techniques uh, through the use of technology and some experience for how to safely navigate people, bring them to safe locations, um, ensure that they are, you know, they're, they're okay for the time being. Uh, evaluations and also through you know networks and be able to bring supplies and things as necessary to kind of keep them safe while the government takes the action that's needed and then in some cases you know we're actually able to to provide the means of transportation to leave whether that be chartered flights or uh, or ground transportation. So let me get this straight though, but in Israel you guys are helping facilitate or you have already the the citizen American citizens who need to get out of Israel but can't. Is that an accurate? Yeah, so two, there's almost two different things going on in Israel. So in Israel, initially, the, there were folks, uh, you know, in Israel proper who had been stuck as a result of wherever they happened to be after the uh, the terrorist attack on 10-7, or commercial flights were, you know, all booked up right. and they were having trouble trying to figure out the bureaucracy for how to, uh, you know, get registered and then get on a State Department chartered flight to get American citizens out. And so that was one population uh, that we we definitely worked to support and help, along with colleagues from Save Our Allies, um, and then separately from that. There's another population of American citizens who found themselves trapped in Gaza. And um, much like Afghanistan, right, there was single gate to get out. It's Rafah crossing the south. And so uh, there's a lot of military activity taking place inside of Gaza, you know, kinetic shaping operations that the Israelis were conducting until, you know, they, they moved with the ground force in to conduct the, the clearing to demilitarize Hamas, which was Prime Minister Netanyahu's stated goal. So in the interim, you had a lot of folks who were stuck didn't know where to go, how to make sure that they were safe, informing, you know, U.S. government officials where their locations were, um, you know, any medical, immediate medical needs, uh, supply drops, those types of things to be able to keep people safe and keep them in locations where they were away from the conflict area. And then assisting uh, with their location, you know, providing the information to the State Department, uh, as well as registering them. Because at the end of the day, the State Department is the official entity that's responsible for U.S. citizens and ensuring that they can leave. And that's not something that we're not a replacement for government. We look at it as a, as a force multiplier, right? So we're, we're standing by and assisting, but without interfering in official government efforts. So how, how does it work? I mean, how do you let people know? Because obviously the U.S. government wasn't doing anything for a while. How do you let people know, hey, we're an organization that can get you out? Uh, or if you have a family member over there, we, we can help. Like, how, how do you guys get the word out so people know to turn to you? Sure. Um, so believe it or not, uh, members of Congress come to us uh, and let us know that things are going on. We've had members of the press that will let us know, say, hey, families have contacted us, we have people who are trapped. Um, and, uh, you know, through efforts like that, and again, since we've done this in Afghanistan and Ukraine, you know, you kind of develop a, a bit of a reputation for doing this line of work in general, and people reach out and say, hey, does you it, does it just, just, uh, just stop for a second. I, yeah, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, does it not blow your mind as a former military official, civilian that dealt with like that, that our government isn't doing what I would deem a, a basic function and that we're basically, you know, what you just said, we're members of Congress are calling us to get their constituents out. Like what, what the heck is going on that we oh. as a government don't have the facilities and the capabilities to say, if you're trapped in a country, we'll get you out. So I think in, in this case, right, if you're talking about being in a trapped area, it's either if you're held hostage, we obviously have counterterrorism forces responsible for hostage rescues, you're well aware. And then, you know, the ability to conduct a non-combatant evacuation operation requires presence on the ground or the ability to operate. So the State Department, obviously, organized flights out of Israel, uh, you know, working through negotiations to get people out through Rafa Gate. So in the interim, while they're working the, those governmental functions for negotiations, um, we kind of, it's almost like case management. Like, you know, we pick up folks who are there and say, hey, you know, we can help you while you're there. Let us help you navigate. Um, and it's it's not a it's not a function that government normally performs. It's a very strange gap in the scenes, is what I would call it, right? In terms of the things that are necessary, because at the end of the day, states says, "Hey, 
let us know where you are. You know, we'll contact you when we have uh, information to provide you for how you need to get out and where you need to go. And, you know, by the way, send us a copy of your passport. In the interim, in the middle of all that, people, what do I do now? How do I keep myself safe? Where do I go? How do I get supplies? Right. You know, how do I ensure people know where my physical location is? And so we're able to provide that case management type role to ensure that those types of things are taking place. And we have a lot of folks on the team who had worked uh, or, or done you know, training in Israel or worked alongside the Egyptians who had previously established relationships, which makes it very easy to then be able to liaise with them, as well as with you know the special operations and intelligence community, because that's where we come from. So we're able to draw on that experience to be able to help provide that, that firsthand connection. It's just, it's unbelievable that, like I said, I, I get it, but it's just, if it wasn't for you guys and what you're doing, and I know there's some other groups that, that did similar work in Afghanistan, but it's just, it, it is, I think yeah. at its face, when you stop and think of, of what we're doing to help people who are coming into the country illegally, like we're, we're going to make sure that we put them on a bus and we do all that. Right. But then when we have American citizens, we go, Hey, let's call up special operations association of America. And they'll, they'll get a charter flight <laughs> over there. Yeah, I mean, it's been uh, it's been definitely an interesting experience. Um, you know, there's a couple other groups that you know, had flights come out of Israel as well. And we've all kind of worked together in the space. I mean, there's there's only so many people who kind of do this this line of work. Um, you know, it's a labor of love. <laughs> it's fellow citizens. You know, we we're, we're paid to get the, to get trained in different capacities. There are different people within the organizations, intelligence, special operations. You know, people in civilian capacities, whatever. You know, bring the bring whatever we have to the table, and we feel you know we have that obligation to fellow citizens. And as long as we don't cross and get into uh, official government lanes, and uh, you know we've been working well together, I have to say, State DoD have worked extremely well with us uh, through this crisis as well. Uh, so we've been pretty fortunate. So I know in a previous life you were on the, uh, a senior member of the White House Hostage Policy um, Review Team. Yep. Take me take me inside. What what would be the government's thinking about how how we're addressing? The current hostages that Hamas has taken. What what do they? What is the goal? Sure. How is it different? Because it's not a state actor. This isn't Russia or North Korea or whatever. This is a, a terrorist organization. So how do we how do we look at them? And what what is sure. our government doing on the backside that we we might not be aware of? That's a great question. So one of the things that we had out of the 2015 hostage policy review that we created is the special envoy for hostage affairs, the presidential special envoy that is, which is Roger Carson's former Green Beret. Great, great guy, carryover from the previous administration, really knows what he's doing and his team is really dedicated. Uh, and then also the hostage recovery fusion cell, which is an uh, interagency intelligence cell, cell meant to, sh uh, to share information regarding the hostages, right? So the, bureau the bureaucracy that was needed was created in terms of intelligence sharing a person whose responsibility is to negotiate over these matters, who's well-trained, is in place. And so when the government looks at these situations, this is probably, by the way, the most complicated case I've ever seen in my career. I mean, I had oversight for policy and operations um, you know, at, at the Pentagon. I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't a, a tier one operator by any means. It's not my background. But having oversight for operations and policy, there's 200 hostages. They were taken from all over southern Israel. So this was clearly a purposeful act. Right, this wasn't like some random cell leader said, "Hey, we're done with the raping and pillaging and murdering. Let's just grab the extra people that are left." This was, this was a direction ahead of time, which tells us a couple things: that Hamas knew this attack was at least designed to be spectacular in, in, in size and its and its uh, effects that it delivered to try to you know achieve their political ends, which is the definition of terrorism: right? politically motivated violence against civilians. So this was in fact a terrorist attack, and their policy you know goal that they've always been trying to achieve is a two-state solution where they don't recognize Israel and Hamas has their own you know their own Palestinian state that they're responsible for. Unlike the other groups that have renounced terrorism in pursuit of that objective, Hamas never did. And when they broke from the Muslim Brotherhood in 87. So you have a terrorist group, but they're also a quasi-state actor because they've been allowed to administer Gaza in a population of 2 million people for over a decade, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're in charge. They're running all the ministries, the, the hospitals, everything else. So 
It's a very bizarre scenario in that regard, much like the Taliban coming back into power now, right? Is this an unlawful state detention? Is this a, you know, in the Taliban case, we're imprisoning people, or is this a hostage taking? In the Hamas case, it's very clearly hostage taking. Right. They've taken civilians, holding them against their will, who did not commit any crimes, and they're looking for something in return. So we know that they're trying to use them as leverage, and they're trying to do that because they're trying to mitigate Israel's military advantage. So you really have two choices, right? It's either a negotiated settlement or you have some type of rescue operation. With a population of 200, what's come out is that not only did you know 2,500 Hamas fighters cross the border in Israel to capture these people, but behind them in the fence were these the, the series of you know criminals and other people who followed them and that they wanted to get in on the action, and they started taking their own hostages as well. So you've got people being held by multiple different groups. It's not just Hamas, a population of over 200 being held in a densely populated urban environment. It's not the most densely populated. It's not top, it's not top 25. There's often a misnomer about Gaza, but it's dense. And there's a threat from RPGs, potential shoulder-fired missiles, SA-7s, those types of things, right? And then you have, you know, small arms fire. You don't want to end up with a Black Hawk Down scenario. You have no ability to do Kazovac or Medivac inside the area. And so you're really limited to a large ground force coming in, because how are you going to conduct simultaneous clandestine hostage rescue operations with a population of 200 dispersed all over the place with a tunnel right. system that's 500 kilometers long with 50 to 100, not tunnels, complexes all over the Gaza's like an ant farm. So from a rescue perspective, it makes you know big rescue operations virtually impossible. And that's why we've been seeing protracted negotiations for over a month, because that's really the only way to solve the situation. So so the bottom line is it's not one entity that's holding them. It's several and they're trying to figure out, you, you know, this guy's got 40 and this guy's got 20, or is that or onesies and twosies? No, it's a great question. And that's that sounds that sounds about right. I'm no longer in government, so I don't have access to classified, but from right. what I've been reading and talking to people, that sounds like that's exactly what's happening. There's multiple groups. We do know from the first two elderly ladies who were released. They were initially brought in the tunnels on you know, motorcycles. They were in a group of 25, and then they were broken up into smaller groups. So if you take the population, and even if it's five, right, and you've got 225, you've got groups of five all over the place if there's that many being held together. So these hostages are dispersed all over the place. So I, I, let's go back to what I was asking. For Strategically, is the U.S. position, based on what you just described, hey, we've got to we we've got to negotiate for these folks one off on, one by one. Is that is that it? And that this strategic pause that the Biden administration is pushing for is an attempt to what have Cutter come in and I, I mean I'm still trying to figure out what what are the next steps like what is going on on the U.S. government side? Is it hey we'll we'll pay you cash? Uh, we what what are we looking to do? Because it seems to me based on what you're describing, it's not one person holding 200. It's it's disparate groups, and you've got to figure out what you're dealing with first and foremost. No, so the goal is obviously to try to get the entire population out at once, right? You want to get as many of the hostages out as you can at one time, for specifically for the reason you said, because you don't want the slow drip. Uh, one, it increases risk over time to the hostages that are there. If there's a health issue or something else, there's an mil active military campaign that's going on. But Hamas also knows that, which is why they're only releasing in small drips, because they want to try to get as much out of this as possible. And they're doing it to mitigate the advantages Israel has of, you know, it, it, uh, armor, artillery, and air support, which they don't have. Same reason they're going to use IEDs. There was a factory discovered the other day, uh, and TTPs that were developed against the United States, you know, by other Shia-backed militias. That that case uh, in in Iraq. So no, they're going to negotiate to try to get as many out as possible. And yes, it's that trilateral negotiation, right, uh, to try to get the, the hostages back. Um, and then you want to find out if they actually have everybody. So the first test is, you know, you want to make sure who you're negotiating with actually has the authority to release people. And because right. there were a couple of folks who were released, we know at least who they're talking to do have the power and authority over those holding folks to get them out. So that's the first thing. And then, as you mentioned, it's the intelligence picture. Do we know where everybody is and do we know who's all holding them? And that's the first thing you have to figure out. So the size of this population, the fact that it's multiple groups and they're dispersed all over the place, 
makes this one of the most complex hostage situations I've ever seen or read about. Yeah. Um, so what, what, if you had to put chances on it based on your expertise, I mean, do, do we stand a pretty good chance of getting these folks back? And secondly, do you think that this pause makes sense? There's a lot of criticism of the Biden administration for advocating for a pause because it just gives Hamas time to regroup. And people are saying, well, how do we know that they're going to keep their word and let hostages out if we do give this pause? Right. So some of it is a trust building measure, right? Like, uh, you know, hey, we're in agreement for a tactical pause. If that's, in fact, what they're asking for on the battlefield in a particular area, uh, we expect to see a release of hostages that are there. So that is that is one reason that you would want to do that. Yes, they get out safe. But also, you know, the other reason under the you know law of armed conflict, you do still have people that are in the battlefield up north, despite Israel making it very clear that they need to leave, dropping leaflets, WhatsApp messages, text, phone calls, you know, everything in, in public pronouncements. So clearing the civilians off the battlefield helps because, you know, I still believe that the biggest Achilles heel to the operation for the Israelis is public sentiment in the Arab world and worldwide, for that matter, in response to, you know, civilian casualties that are there. Uh, you know, they have an op obligation to demilitarize Hamas and ensure that they're never able to conduct an attack like that again. And, you know, the, the, uh, the images that are coming out in the humanitarian situation uh, will you know, sort of undermine their ability to get you know, support for the operation worldwide. So it's beneficial for Israel to, to have these pauses to clear these civilians off the battlefield and, and give them freedom of maneuver to operate. And that way they can, you know, really take the fight to the terrorists, just like we did in Fallujah. And then, you know, when I fought in Sadr City in 2008. Interesting. Um, you know, as I said, we're observing Veterans Day today. I want to just switch gears for a second and ask you sure. uh, two, two questions. One is the Republican debate was this week and they asked, Hugh Hewitt was asking about the size of the Navy, how much of a ship, how big should our Navy be in terms of vis-a-vis -vis China, et cetera. Do you think that that our military now, um, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Space Force, do we have the capability to 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 take on China, to deter China? Um, are are we are we falling behind, or do we have what it takes to win still? You know, I think the the Deputy Secretary uh, announced a program called Replicator that was supposed to you know field tens of thousands of autonomous vehicles, both ground and uh, and maritime, over the next. 18 to 24 months, which I think was a pretty clear message to China that we're, you know, we're trying to get ahead of, uh, of any potential conflict that could arise in the South, South China Sea contingency, whether that be Taiwan or otherwise. Uh, because, yeah, I don't think that, um, you know, we, that the Chinese are waiting around on our acquisition cycle and our ability to do, right. you know, eight, you know, 60 month studies to go look at whether the bathrooms are appropriate in a littoral combat ship. They don't care. And yeah. so, no. So I think, you know, the size of the Navy uh, is, is obviously of concern, ensuring that we have enough ships to be able to, to mitigate that potential threat. More importantly, service deterrence is a big concern. And, you know, China has, has been a, you know, a, a proponent of stealing corporate proprietary data theft for all kinds of reasons, whether it be banking secrets, but also from the defense community. Right. And so they have, they have you know, increased the size of their military spending budget uh, significantly, and they are becoming you know, more of a global superpower and people, you know, I make that comment, people say, well, they're already a superpower. Yes, they are an economic superpower while they're out there, but there's elements of power, as you and I well know from time in government, diplomatic, information, military, and economic. They are trying to get all of those online to where they would be competitive across the board as part of what they call their 2049 plan. But in the next couple of years, they will achieve the military levels that they need to, to be able to conduct an attack like against Taiwan or elsewhere. And we have a lot of catching up to do to ensure that we are prepared for that, but also more importantly, as you mentioned, to deter it. And no, we are not there. Yeah, I, I wish more Americans understood that point because the way that China is going and the provocative nature that they operate in the South China Sea, I don't think enough people see. Um, the yeah. last thing I want to ask you is you, you look at the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, 
they all miss their recruiting goals. The only service branch to meet uh, recruiting goals is, is the Marine Corps. And they've stuck with a very tough brand, the few, the proud yeah. of the Marines. People want to, if you want to join the Marines, you know what you're getting. And it was funny, I was listening to some interview and the guy said, you know, we hand out enlistment bonuses and all these other things to folks to get in. And some of the things are working and some of the things are not working. What do you get if you join the Marines? And he goes, you get to be a Marine. And I just thought that, yeah. that they get their brand. But why sure. do you think the other service branches are missing their recruiting goals? Is it woke culture? Is it that uh, a lack of wanting to serve the country? Is it more money? What, what are you hearing when you talk to younger folks? I think it's a combination of all of that, to be honest with you. Yeah, so I think you know a lot of the policies you just mentioned that's you know being described as the woke culture, you know, in terms of uh, what's being instituted, there is some of that pushback that's coming in. There's societal pushback against that in, in general terms. So that's one of the causal factors. Both you know the wars have stopped, right? So people, a lot of people enlisted, like and so did I, for that matter, and you joined up as well after 9/11. Those days are you know are coming to to a close. We also have a, a population that has been you know getting more obese and less uh, in shape. I forget the number of people actually eligible to join us right. is smaller than it's ever been. And yeah, there's this, that seems to be this lack of, of desire to join and, and, you know, service towards the country. I don't know if that's a reflection of civics or our national politics, but you stick all that together and you get a group of people who couldn't be bothered. And that is a, it is a serious concern from a national security perspective. That's got to be changed. And each one of those areas has to be looked at. Yeah, I agree. It just, it's upsetting to me because one of the greatest statistics that I've seen that is cause for concerns is one of the greatest sources of people was people whose family had served. And you're now yep. seeing that drop and people who have served aren't telling their kids, I, I don't think this is where you should go anymore. And that that should be the big telltale sign. Yeah, it is a problem because if you don't recognize the service that you joined for the benefits and reasons why you did still being reflective of, of your decision making at the time, it makes you question, is that an environment that you want to have your kids serve in? And so right. th that being espoused by, by veterans is a is a very dangerous thing. I think you're 100% right, Sean. All right. Alex, thanks for being with us. Happy Veterans Day. Thanks for our, what you've done, your service, but also what Special Operations of Association of America is continuing to do to, to serve uh, so many citizens throughout the world. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for being with us. You too, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. All right, folks, thanks for being with us. What a great show to wrap up the week. As I said, a lot to break down next week. Jill Stein jumping in that Green Party uh, campaign for president that will help Trump. Uh, obviously, a lot more to break down with you as far as where that stands, what's going on in the race for president, plus Trump's legal troubles. And on Monday, we'll have five days until the government shuts down. So a lot to get to. Uh, as always, thank you for subscribing and sharing. Please do that. Uh, sign up on YouTube and Rumble. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to text me, 571-441-4991. Have a great weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday on The Sean Spicer Show. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.